This is KMTT, and today is Thursday. Every Thursday in the summer months, we'll have a shiur in the Megillot, and now Megillat uh, Rut. We're very pleased to uh, invite Dr. Yael Ziegler, teachers in a uh, Herzog Teachers College, affiliated with Yeshivat HaRetzion, who will be giving the shiur in Megillat Rut. Hi, I'm Yael Ziegler, um, and as we approach the Chag of Shavuot, I will be doing a five-part series on the Book of Root in preparation for reading this book on Chag Shavuot. Um, now, most of us are familiar with the Book of Root. It's a short book, only four prakim long. It's an important book. It relates to many other books in Tanakh, most um most obviously to the the uh, book of Shoftim. Of course, Megillat Rut begins with the words, Vahiri Meshvata Shoftim, but also, of course, to the book of Shmuel, and likewise to the book of Melachim, because, of course, Rut is the book of Melchud, or it's the book that at least leads us out of the period of the Shoftim and into the period of the kings. Rut is, of course, the great-grandmother of David HaMelech, and this book, therefore, constitutes the background to the Malchut. Now, um, when we talk about Megillat Rut, um, there's a tremendous amount to learn in Megillat Rut. There's simply no conceivable way that I could teach this book in five short lectures. Um, and so what I've decided to do is to offer five lectures on uh, offering a little bit of the context of Megillat Rut. What I'd like to see is the interplay between Megillat Rut and some of the other books in Tanakh, the context of Megillat Rut as it um brings together different books of Tanakh and as it draws upon other books of Tanakh and as it impacts upon other books of Tanakh. And that's really what I'm going to be try, try to be doing in most of these lectures, although in the last lecture I might really try to focus on Megillat Root and discuss some of the um, structural ideas that are in the book itself. Now, whenever we begin a new book, um, we begin with the question of the idea, the reason for the book, the, um, the, the real essence of the book, the message of the book, particularly why is this book one of the uh, uh, 24 books of Tanakh, which is, of course, a very coveted um, place to, uh, to, to, to be. And, of course, there are only 24 books that make it into the Tanakh, despite the fact that there are many more books that seem to have uh, been written with the express purpose or intent of being part of the biblical canon. Books such as Ben Sira um, or uh, perhaps some of the other apocryphal books um, do not make it into the Tanakh. And therefore, I think even more so, we must ask ourselves, why is any book in the Tanakh, what is the message of this book? What is it that we're meant to learn from this book that has some sort of enduring or eternal message? So that Chazal, when they determine which would be the Kafdalid, uh books, the 24 books of the canon, actually included this book as a separate book. Um, now, while we do have many books which... Um, which also have uh, or in, involve Chazal in discussion as to why it should be part of Tanakh, or perhaps there are some members of Chazal that say about certain books that perhaps it should not be in Tanakh. Books such as Kohelet, Shir Hashirim, Esther, and perhaps also surprisingly Yechezkel, perhaps less surprisingly Eov, right? so Mishlei. There are certain books that actually Chazal do discuss the question, should this be part of Tanakh or not? This discussion is not 
present with regard to the book of Ruth. However, even though there isn't a discussion as to whether or not this book should be part of the canon or should not be part of the canon, there is actually an extensive discussion or a discussion which at least uh, echoes of it have been found in certain sources in Chazal as to what is the purpose of Migdal Ruth, what is its underlying idea, what is its theological message. Now, um, on some level, I think that this discussion arises because we have a very nice story, um, which is really seems to not have a tremendous amount of um, internal drama. Right? It's not like the book of Esther, which deals with an existential threat to the Jewish people. Um, and, and really, we just have a nice story about uh, some very, very extraordinarily nice people. Rude is uh, above and beyond the call of duty, uh, expresses her loyalty and kindness to Naomi, and, and Boaz also is an extraordinary example of kindness. Um, not very much happens in this book. It's a nice story about a lot of nice people who are doing nice things to each for each other. And of course, the end of the story is very dramatic because the end of the story uh, leads us to David. But there's no internal drama in the story that actually leads us to the David. And the question obviously revolves around whether or not Ruth is going to find a husband, whether or not Root will successfully bring a child in order to restore the family of Naomi, the family of Elimelech, which is, uh, does seem to be threatened with uh, extinction at the beginning of the book. And yet <clears throat> there doesn't really ha- seem to be any very uh, compelling drama in this story. And so Chazal really do ask this question. In fact, they ask the question in the Midrash, in Rut Rabbah, in Perak Bet, um, uh, Midrash Yudalid. Rabbi Zera asks, Migilazo ein ba lo tum'a v'lo tahara v'lo isor v'lo heter the, the formulation of the question itself is interesting. I'm not going to uh, discuss it at great length, but Rabbi Zera does say here, this Megillah doesn't have any purities or impurities or prohibitions. Uh, for what purpose was it written? Now, actually, interestingly enough, we actually learn a lot of halacha from Megillah root, so the formulation of the question is itself interesting. I'm much more interested, though, in the answer. Lilomdecha, it is here to teach you, Kama Sachar Tov How great is the reward of the ones who do kindness? Of course, the uh, implication here is that those who do kindness are, in fact, Root and Boaz, who I just now mentioned as two people who are who really do extraordinary kindness for uh, the for the other in this story, um, and of course, what is their Sachar Tov? What is their great reward that they receive? That is the kingship. Um, And so it's a nice question. It's a nice answer. Um, I I find it actually a little bit unsatisfying, and I'll explain why. Um, I find it to be an unsatisfying answer, first and foremost, because there are others from whom we can learn a very similar lesson. There are others who do gemilut chasadim. Of course, the first one that comes to mind is Avram Avinu. One could certainly find a very nice sachar tov that Avram Avinu receives, a very nice reward that Avram uh, receives for the great gemilut chasadim that he does. And that is, of course, he becomes the progenitor of the Jewish nation. Uh, one could likewise point to Rivka, Rebecca, uh, who is in many ways a mirror image of Avraham, certainly in her, in the kindness that she does. Uh, and she too receives a reward. She becomes one of the matriarchs. She becomes 
of course, the mother of Yaakov. And so there are other places that we could learn a very similar lesson. If, in fact, we're just trying to teach here the importance of doing kindness, well, this we can certainly learn from God himself, who is Osei Chesed La'alafim. And we have, of course, the principle of Bechol Durachecha De'ehu, Imitatio De'e, we are meant to imitate God to go in his path. And so I emerged from the from from even a cursory reading of the Tanakh with a very strong sense of the value of Gmilut Chasadim. For what uh, do I need an entire book in order to teach me this lesson? That's my first question on this um, on this question and answer of Chazal in the Midrash. Um, but I have a, a second question, which I think is far more troubling or far more um, uh, problematic, and that is the the type of kindness that is practiced here in Migilat Rut. Um, Rut is an extraordinarily kind person. There is no doubt about it. And yet her acts of kindness are acts which involve self-nullification. I might even say self-sacrifice. And consider the very first thing that she does here when she follows Naomi back to Beit Lechem, despite the fact that Naomi tells her, if you come with me to Beit Lechem, you will have no future. I have no sons for you. I have no guarantee that you, anybody will marry you. Of course, we're going to see that Ruth is a Moavite. She's not exactly somebody that uh, the people of Beit Lechem are particularly uh, enthusiastic about marrying for all sorts of reasons, which we will allude to in the next Shiurim. But uh, be that as it may, I think the most important point here is that Ruth stays with Naomi, despite the fact that she is told that she has no future if she stays with Naomi. That means that this is an act of self-sacrifice, perhaps even one which we would not necessarily encourage um, our daughters and our members of our community to, uh, to, to, to take upon themselves. If we would ask, what is better? Is it better to go to Moab where you will have a husband and children and a future and continuity? Or is it better to stay with your mother-in-law who you love and you wish to be, you know, to express kindness, uh, to? And, and let's leave aside the question of, um, of conversion here. Just the question of the, the, the act of kindness, which Root does, I think also arouses, uh, a certain question in our mind. What is better? Is it better for Ruth to take care of herself and her own future? Or is it better really for her to act with such tremendous kindness towards Naomi so that she accompanies Naomi to uh, Beit Lechem? Now, uh, the reason that, I, that I'm, I'm mentioning this kindness and the reason I'm picking up on this sort of kindness that Ruth does is because this is really a, a consistent portrayal of Ruth's kindness throughout the story. Um, I mean, you know, leaving aside even... Perak Bet, the second chapter, where Root goes to pick like a pauper in the fields in order to obtain food for herself and Naomi, which is certainly an act of, uh, of, of sacrifice, um, because, you know, she is, of course, um, humbling herself in order to get food for Naomi. Leaving that aside, move on to the next kindness, which is when Naomi asks Root to go to the fields um, at night, where Boaz is um, is is lying, and she should um, basically seduce him. She should wash and put on oils and put on her finest dress and wait until he's eaten and drunk and and lie down, and then she should come and uncover his feet. Uh, this whole scenario, this whole suggestive scenario, is very problematic from Root's perspective. After all, Root is a Moavite, and the Moavites are in fact 
suspected always of promiscuity, right? The Benot Moav, who go and seduce the Bnei Yisrael in B'midbar Perakafe in Numbers chapter 25. Um, they are, they are, are, we suspect them of the, this kind of behavior. And of course, Ruth, um, when she, when she arrives in Beit Lechem, has to prove to the people of Beit Lechem that she is in fact not a promiscuous Moavite. Naomi, by asking Ruth to do this, is actually endangering Ruth's reputation. Ruth herself is not particularly enthusiastic about Naomi's request, and she responds to her in Pasuk, Hey, Vatomer Leha, in, in chapter 3, in verse 5, and she responds to her, she says to her, Kol Anything you tell me, I will do. Not that she's particularly enthusiastic, but she's willing to do it for Naomi in order to bring progeny to the family of Naomi. In fact, once again, we see Ruth's tremendous kindness towards Naomi and her self-sacrifice. I mean, even Boaz recognizes that this is a kindness. He says to her in, um, in Pasuk Yud, Your second kindness was even gra- greater than your first kindness. The fact that you agreed to do this, to come to the field and to seek me out and to uh, engage in this um, rather suggestive scenario. Now, um, all of this really, I think, comes to uh, a head in Perak Dalid in the fourth chapter, when, um, when Ruth and Boaz, after they have actually been married, they do have a child, and Ruth gives this child to Naomi, or in fact, Naomi takes the child and becomes the child's nursemaid. So much so is this child now perceived not as Ruth's child, but as Naomi's child, that the neighbor women who name the child say, Yulad ben Naomi, a son has been born for Naomi. And this act of self-sacrifice, this act of kindness, of Ruth having a child only then to give the child over to Naomi's care, to Naomi's um, uh, credit almost, this is Naomi's progeny here, is perhaps the peak of Ruth's kindness, which I think must be defined as a very particular kind of kindness, one in which Root engages in a certain type of self-sacrifice here, and a certain type of self-nullification for the other, where she gives her progeny to the other, she gives of herself to the other in order to do kindness with the other. Now, this is a very peculiar kind of chesed, and it's a chesed which, while it certainly characterizes Ruth, and in my mind also makes Ruth such an outstanding uh, human being, it's not necessarily the kind of kindness that I would sell, that I would suggest is the ideal. Certainly not the kind of kindness that I, that I would expect as an ideal. Uh, not from my daughter, not from my students, not from the community at large. Uh, do we in fact uh, expect of someone? Do we expect? Requi- do we in fact require of someone else to um, exercise this kind of self nullification in one's kindness for other? Now, I'm going to leave aside that question for a moment. And those were two questions that I had on the Midrash's express opinion that the purpose of this Megillah is to teach us how great is the reward for the kindness that others do. And I want to turn for a moment to the Zohar. The Zohar here has a Midrash on Megillat root where he says, in brief, Tamani im Megillah zo loba el zaro shel David. 
I would be very surprised if the purpose of this Mikilah were anything but telling us about the ancestry of David. Now, this is a separate answer. The Zohar seems to be saying, really, the idea of this Megillah is to get us to the very last word. What is the last word of the Megillah? David. Vishai holid et David. And in fact, if we turn to Shmuel Aleph, Perak Zion, for example, the 17th chapter of the first book of Samuel, we will in fact see that there is no story of David's birth. And we don't always have the story of somebody's birth in Tanakh, but we do often, every, you know, certainly with some of the key characters, such as Moshe, such as Shmuel, such as Shimshon, and we, if we're looking for the story of the background of David's birth, actually it is to be found here in Megillat Root and not in the book of Samuel where we meet David for the first time. And of course, it is also the last word, as I mentioned, of Megillat Root. And so the whole Megillat seems to be leading us to this, um, to this birth of David. Um, now, what, what I really want to suggest here is a combination of both of these answers offered by the two different Midrashim. Because, of course, the birth of David, or the background of David, comes with a certain problem. And the problem is, is that David comes from a Moabite woman. And we are told, back in um, Devarim, we are told, in Devarim Perak of Gimel, we're told, Lo yavo amoni umoavi b'kal Hashem. Um, and, and what we know from this is, is that there's a problem with the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now we know from the Gemara Nevamot that this is only talking about the male Moabites and Ammonites and not the female Moabites and Ammonites. And yet, at the same time, we have to consider the reason why the, um, the Ammoni and the Moavi is not allowed to come into Kal Hashem. So the Psukim go on and say, Al-Dvar asher lo kidmu etchem balechem uvamayim baderech b'tzetchem mimitzrayim. Because they didn't give you food and water when you were coming out of Mitzrayim. Now, here what seems to be suggested is that the Ammonites and Moavites do not have the essential quality of gemilut chasadim. And so we don't allow them into Kalashem because, of course, we are built on the pillar of Avraham and Avraham's kindness. As a nation, we are a nation of kindness. In fact, the Rambam says in several places, Anyone who is cruel and doesn't, um, it, it doesn't have the quality of mercy and kindness. So we are suspicious as to whether or not really he genealogically comes from Amisrael. Because we have made great efforts not to allow anyone who has this cruel, um, uh, this cruel persona into Kal Hashem, into the congregation of God. And therefore, the story of Megillat Rud, if we combine both of these Mizrashim, prove to us beyond any shadow of a doubt that in fact, David HaMelech comes from kosher stock because not only is his great-grandmother, the Moavite, a woman who we know from the Gemara is allowed to come into Kal Hashem, but also what we have here is a story of her tremendous chesed, of her tremendous kindness, thereby constituting proof that in fact she is not disqualified from coming into Kal Hashem, therefore constituting proof that David in fact is capable of, um, is in fact part of Kal Hashem and is not disqualified because of his lineage. Now, lest we think that this is just 
uh, some sort of um, of uh, idea in the air. That's of course um, dis, that's th- th- this idea. Of course, does find expression both in the midrash and in the gemara. In the gemara in brachot, Shaul, when he's asking about uh, David after the war with Goliath, Shaul says several times, "Ben Mizahanar, Ben Mizah Elam, who is that?" And the gemara says, "What is Shaul really asking?" And uh, the gemara answers, Shaul is really asking from which line. Uh, does David come in Shevet Yudah? Does he come from Peret or does he come from Zerach? In other words, does he come from the line of kingship? Shaul is suspicious that David is that person that Shmuel had spoken about as the more appropriate person for the Malchut. In any case, the story goes on in the Gemara, it's on Daf Ayin Vav Amubet, where Doeg Ha'adomi, right, the perennial bad guy in Sefer Shmuel, says to Shaul, before you ask the question whether or not he comes from the lineage of kingship, whether or not he is the appropriate one for kingship, if you're so afraid of that, you need to ask about him whether or not he's even appropriate to be part of Am Yisrael or not. Why not? says Because he comes from Ruth the Moavite. And we know that Moavites are disqualified from coming into Kal Hashem. At this point, the Gemara explains, no, that is only said about male Moavites, not about female Moavites. In any case, what we do see is that a few generations after Ruth, there still remains the question, at least among people like Doeg HaAdomi, if in fact... David is going to be disqualified from entrance into the Jewish people because of his lineage. And so we have here these two Midrashim, one of which tells us that Migilat Rud is all about Gmilut Chasadim, and one of which tells us that Migilat Rud is all about David's background. If we take these two Midrashim and we combine them together, what we're really being told is that Migilat Rud comes to teach us that there is no doubt whatsoever that David Amalek is um, is is allowed to be the king, that he is an appropriate person to be the king. I want to take these ideas uh, a couple steps further and talk a little bit about um, uh, these midrashim, not in terms of their uh, explaining the minimal qualifications for David entrance, David's entrance into Kal Hashem, but I really want to take this a step further and and suggest that Miguel Ruth is not telling us why David is allowed to be a king, but why David must be the king, why David is the perfectly appropriate king, why David is a, from a, a genealogical perspective, from a, an, from the perspective of his background, is the exact right person to be the king. In order to really um, examine this, this issue, we have to begin with the question of kingship in general. Now, we know that the kingship the Tanakh's approach to kingship is very complex. On the one hand, we have Devarim Perak Zion. And Devarim Perak Zion uh, formulates the setting up of the monarchy as what seems to be a, a mitzvah doraita, a biblical commandment, som tasim alecha melech. Now the, the truth is, is that there is a certain controversy about the formulation of that pasuk as well. Most of the Rishonim do believe that this is in fact a mitzvah asay, a biblical positive commandment. While some do not, some do not, certainly uh, notably the Abar Benel does not believe that there is a positive biblical commandment of setting up a malchut. 
In any case, though, even if we say that there is a biblical commandment of setting up the Malchud, we have to ask the question with respect to the eighth chapter in uh, the first book of Samuel, Shmuel Aleph Perichet, and that is, why are the people so um, why is Shmuel so upset at the people? Why is God so upset at the people when the people ask for a king? If, in fact, the kingship is not just desirable, but a biblical um, uh, commandment, so then why would Shmuel be so angry when the people ask for um, kingship? And he, as God as well, God says, um, right? God says to Shmuel, it wasn't you that they rejected in asking for a king, it's me that they rejected. God seems to perceive the request for kingship as a rejection of God's own kingship. Now, um, there, uh, there are a tremendous amount of sources that deal with this question. It is, uh, of course, a very well-known topic. I'll just mention the Gemara and Sanhedrin and Daf Kaf, which also appears in the Sifrei and Dvarim Yudzayin, which records a machloket between Rabbi Nehurai and Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Nehurai regards the Malchut as something negative. We are not interested in the Malchut. Rabbi Yehuda says, V'halo mitzvah mina Torah, but it's a mitzvah mina Torah. And he quotes the Pasuk in Devarim Yudzayin, Som Tasim Alech Melech, and he explains uh, why, in fact, God is angry in Shmuel Aleph Perichet, even though the monarchy is, in fact, an ideal institution. Now, Despite this controversy, and, and this is a, uh, a controversy which, which appears in many different, um, many different places, both among Chazal and among the Rishonim, um, it, it is difficult to imagine that the Tanakh is actually opposed to a monarchical system. Hashem does inform Avraham and Yaakov that kings will come from them. Um, and many of the prophets later on prophesy an ideal vision of the restoration of monarchy, notably Yeshayahu. Um, and of course, as I said, most of the Rishonim as well do regard the monarchy, the setting up of the monarchy, as a positive biblical commandment. I would take it even a step further. From a logical standpoint, it would seem to be that a monarchical system is best suited right now to uh, fix the problems of Sefer Shoftim. Let's not forget that the previous period, the period of the leadership of the Shoftim, was a period which ended with civil war, it ended with societal chaos, it ended with religious chaos, it ended with Am Yisrael engaged in a story that ominously echoed the story of Stom and Amorah, thereby suggesting that Am Yisrael is on the brink of existential annihilation. Um, and of course, that story reverberates with the phrase, In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everybody did whatever they wanted. In other words, what we seem to regard as the appropriate solution for the period of the Shoftim is in fact a monarchy. And so the institution of monarchy seems to be the ideal institution, the institution that in fact Am Yisrael is searching for certainly at this time. Nevertheless, and here I want to suggest that the reason that there's such a tremendous sense of, of, um, um, of ambivalence towards the institution of monarchy, both in the Tanakh and in Chazal and even among the Rishonim, is because while the institution of monarchy has the potential to achieve greatness, it also contains within it an abiding danger. 
Monarchical systems concentrate power in the hands of one man. The king has all of the different infrastructures at his disposal. He is, of course, uh, the one who is solely in charge of the judicial system, the army, the treasury. Of course, we know Lord Acton writes famously, power cor- tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And of course, the history of monarchies from ancient to modern times also substantiates this theory that monarchies easily generate tyrannical, corrupt behavior. Now, I think that one only has to look at the monarchy of the northern kings in Israel in order to arrive at this conclusion. In fact, not one good king emerges from the monarchy in Malchut Israel, in the northern kingdom. I'm not talking about Malchut Beit David. I'm talking about Yeruvam ben Avad and Basha and Omri and Achav. The only person that is said at all to have done good in the eyes of God is Yehu ben and that is because he actually engages in this terrible bloodbath in which he he destroys the house of Achav. God approves of this destruction because the house of Achav is so corrupt. But one wouldn't actually look at Yehu ben Nimshi as a positive role model. Certainly one wouldn't look at him as a king who is a just and kind king. He does what God says, but um, he certainly is a reflection of um, monarchs in all of their tyranny and perhaps even evil. Uh, Hoshea regards Yehu Benimshi in a similar manner. Now, the Tanakh is aware of this danger, and therefore the Tanakh creates all sorts of precautions and safeguards in order to contain the power of the monarch. This is part of Dvarim Parakid Zion. The king is not allowed to have many wives. The king is not allowed to have too much money. The king is not allowed to have too much military power. Rak lo yarbelo nashim, lo yarbelo nasusim, lo yarbelo chesef v'zahav. Right? There are certain limitation uh, limitations on the king's power nevertheless as the institution of kingship while desirable in many ways remains a potentially corrupt institution and what i would like to suggest here is is that this is the idea of migilat root in trying to find a formula for ensuring that malche yehuda the ideal judean kings do not slide into tyranny as a result of their extraordinary power. The Tanakh presents an ingenious solution. The king here is born into a situation in which he is genetically predisposed to becoming an outstanding, scrupulous leader, one who um, whose potential for corruption is inhibited because of the particular personality traits which he possesses. And that, I believe, is the idea of the type of kindness which is deplay- displayed repeatedly by Root throughout the story. While um, Root, by consistently undermining her own interest and engaging in this self-nullification might not, in fact, be the model that I would wish to present to my daughter or my students or my children. I don't think I would suggest to anybody that the appropriate way to do kindness is to sacrifice one's own interests in favor of the others. This is, in fact, a necessary prerequisite for the personality 
of a leader, someone who has the ability to give of himself unselfishly and totally, to always think of the other. In that um, situation, if one recognizes that the needs of the thou are more important and more central than the needs of the I, the leader can, in fact, use all of the power at his disposal, not in order to promote his own self-interest, but in order to promote the interests of the thou. And so what I want to suggest here is that the Midrash, by saying that the entire purpose of Migilat Rut is to tell us about the great reward of those who do kindness, um, and that, of course, leads us to the kingship, to David HaMelech, what we're suggesting here, in fact, is that it's a specific kind of kindness which we are developing here, which we are nurturing here in Migilat Rut, in order to lead us to a monarchy which has at least a hope that it will not become a recipe for depravity, a recipe for perversion of justice, a recipe for the tyranny which monarchy has always been. Now, in order to... Um, conclude this year, I, I know we are actually getting to the end of this year, I want to uh, mention two different proofs or two different indications of this idea. The first idea that I want to mention is um, a, a kriv lochtiv that um, that appears in root parak gimel. This was actually once pointed out to me by my brother that there are many different kriuchtivs uh, when when a word is written one way but actually read a different way in parak gimel. And twice in parak gimel in chapter three, there's a word which is read but actually is not written in the text. And in both of these cases. It is when Ruth is speaking and she uses the word a lie. In both situations, Ruth is speaking to Naomi. And Ruth says to Naomi, tomri Everything you tell to me, I will do. And Ruth says to Naomi, Ki amar al el He said to me, she's quoting Boaz, what Boaz said to her. And yet in both of these situations, the word a lie does not appear in the Pasuk when we read it from the Megillah, when we read it even in our printed editions of the Tanakh. This, uh, to, this seems to be there in order to suggest that in fact, who is Root? This Kriuchtiv characterizes Root. Root is personified by her ability to take the word a lie out of the sentence. She is not thinking of the Eli. She's always thinking of the other. And this is the necessary prerequisite for successful kingship. This ultimately becomes the formula for the creation of a monarchical line in which self-interest does not play a role in the king's decision as to how to use his power. Now, um, really, as a final note, what we really have to ask ourselves is, um, does this succeed? I mean, we mentioned before the northern kingdom, which is really filled with tyranny. One only has to look at the story of Ahav, which is filled with corruption, both um, uh, as a political leader and also as a spiritual person. The kings do not do what is good in the eyes of God in the northern kingdom. But what about the descendants of Boaz and Ruth? 
Are they in fact successful where their northern counterparts fail? Does this experiment prove itself by creating a couple who do chesed that is self self nullifying chesed, chesed which in which they show that they are not interested in the promotion of their own interests, but rather in the thou. These are both people who do chesed shall emet chesed kindness for the other that um, that that never really thinks about themselves. Does this experiment work? Do we in fact create a line of successful kings? Well, of course, this question is one which doesn't have an unequivocal answer. We have some very evil kings in um, in the the uh, the line of uh, the Judean kings, and yet if one measures the success of the Judean line alongside the northern counterparts, what we really see is an unusual amount of successful kings. We have a David. We have Shlomo, despite both of their um, uh, specific sins that they do in their life. Not only that, we have a Yehoshaphat, we have an Asa, we have Yotam, we have Amatziah, we have Uziah, we have Chizkiyahu, we have Yoshiyahu. We have quite a number of kings who may be said, in fact, to um to to be personified by these kinds of character traits. In fact, I would even venture to say that if we look at the story of David and Bacheva, what we really see in that story more than anything else is how easily a king's power can lead him down a path of debauchery, of corruption, of sinfulness, without going too deeply into the question of whether or not David sins or not in that story. It certainly is a troubling story. It certainly is a story in which David does not behave in the manner that we expect of him to behave. And what we see is, in in my mind, is how easily power can corrupt someone, how easily someone can be led off of a good path. And what I want to um, to conclude by saying is, is that the story of Ruth and Boaz is an extraordinary attempt to create something which, in my mind, is almost unheard of, and that is a monarchy in which the monarch uses his power not for himself, but for the other. And it is Root who personifies a specific kind of Gemilut Chasadim, one which is absolutely a necessary prerequisite for the leadership of Am Yisrael, which can pull us out of the period of Sefer Shoftim, a period of self-interested leaders, a period of corrupt leaders, a period which leads us into a state of chaos characterized by the by the uh, recurring phrase, In those days, there was no king of Israel, and so everybody did whatever they wanted. It is the story of Ruth and Boaz which can lead us out of that period into a period of kingship, into a period of monarchy, in which the uh, first goal is to serve the people. And that's why Boaz and Ruth have a child whom they name Oved. Oved is a servant of the people. He is not using his power. He's not meant to teach his progeny to use his power for himself, but rather he is meant to be the one who serves his people. Thank you.